It's, uh, it's kind of interesting, many, many times we run across a passage such as this and we don't really look to see exactly what is being said. We just read through it and uh, go, yeah, I've heard that before. And so let's take a moment this evening as we look to see the actual outworking of the gospel in the life of a believer, and that is to bear one another's burdens. Look with me if you would actually go back one verse into the last verse of chapter 20 or of chapter 5 verse 26 because it ties in with the with the continuation of chapter 6. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Go back to verse number 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Father, thank you for your word. And Father, as one has prayed before, open, Lord, our hearts. Father, so that we would not be such a stiff-necked people, that we're unwilling to change. We're unwilling to allow the Holy Spirit of God to affect a difference in our lives. Father, what we are not, we ask that You would make us. What we know not, we ask, Lord, that You would teach us. And what we have not, in the strength and the ability to live this righteous life, we ask that You would give it to us. We pray these things in Your Son's name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. <clears throat> As we have seen in this Gospel, uh, in, in this uh, uh, epistle here, uh, the book of Galatians, the Gospel has a life-altering effect. And it ought to have a life-altering effect. It ought to make a difference. It ought to change. It ought to uh, bring about some sort of uh, uh, noticeable um, uh, difference between what we were and what we are today. If, If I am the same today that I was a year ago, or if I am the same today that I, then I, that I was uh, prior to meeting Christ, then I have not truly experienced the changing power of the Holy Spirit of God. Now those are difficult words to swallow, and many times we want, <clears throat> we want the ease that comes along with the, uh, uh, the, uh, the gospel. We want that, the simplicity of the gospel, and please don't misunderstand me, I believe that the gospel is simple. It is simply this, that Christ died for you to pay your way. And He was buried, 
He rose again the third day, proving who He was, that He was God. And all you must do is call upon Him, and He will save you. But the problem is, in our understanding that the gospel is simple, we completely remove any responsibility that we have to now live in a life worthy of the calling wherewith we have been called. We want to be cautious with that. Now, as D.L. Moody once said, I do not work my soul to save that my Lord hath done, but I will work like any slave for the love of His dear Son. And so the question then comes into play in, is this gospel a life-changing, a uh, life-altering teaching, a life-changing knowledge? If it is... Has my life been changed? That's the question that each and every one of us must ask on a regular basis. This is what what the Apostle meant when he said to work out your salvation daily through fear and trembling. It's not a one-time event where I work out my salvation and then I move on. I continue to work out my salvation, not in the sense of I'm trying to daily gain my salvation, but I'm daily trying to reckon myself dead to myself, dead to flesh, dead to the sins, dead to the passions of the old man. And I reckon myself daily that I have been raised to walk in newness of life. This is a daily experience for us. When I come to the place where it no longer matters to me, I have great reason to have some uh, trepidation as I examine, am I truly a child of God? This is not to say that we're going to be perfect. Not by any stretch of the imagination is it that from this moment on, uh, once a person comes to know Christ, they're going to be perfect. So if you're not perfect, you're not saved. That's not what the apostle wants us to understand. That's not what the Bible teaches. As a matter of fact, if you were to go to the book of 1 John and and read through the book of 1 John, it's one of my favorite books. I like to take about a month every year and just study nothing but but the book of 1 John. And I pour through it. I read chapter, I read the book in its entirety all week long. Then I read chapter one in its entirety the next week. And then chapter two in its entirety. And I make my way all the way through chapter five. Because it's a reminder to me the book of 1 John was written to the believer. And it's a wake up call to those of us born again by the Spirit of God. Are you living a life revealing? what you're claiming by your mouth. When we come to a passage such as Galatians chapter 6, we need to remember that the gospel is not not merely an entrance ticket to heaven. And and so many today make uh, make uh, salvation merely about destinations. No, my friend, the good news is not how you can go to heaven. The good news is how you can know God. And that's where we need to camp. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about a relationship with Him. The gospel of Jesus Christ is how you and I, my friends, beloved, we can now have a relationship with the God that made us where before sin had kept me away from that. It's not merely a destination fix. We need to get that right. 
as chapter 5 ends, showing us the works of the flesh in contrast to the fruit of the Spirit. We saw how the works of the flesh is in reference to man's efforts. But the fruit of the Spirit is something produced in us that we in in and of ourselves cannot do. That's why we... We run into these situations and I'll have people from time to time say, so I'm supposed to love this person that did this to me? In your flesh, it's not possible. But with the Holy Spirit of God that dwells within me, I can do all things through Christ. That's what the apostle meant. I, I, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I, I like to... Uh, I don't know, maybe I'm just crass, I don't know. But you, you, know, you walk through and you see people and they, they have their, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And, they, and you know, it's like, oh, that's great. And then they try to make their way onto American Idol. <laughs> that's not what that verse means. <laughs> I can do all things through Christ and I'm going to paint it on my shoes and I'm going to be the next NBA player. That's not what that verse is saying. I can't love that person. You don't know what they've done. But you can do all things through Christ. You see, it's different now. I don't have the ability to be patient. Especially in that I can do all things through Christ. You see, the fruit of the Spirit is something that is given to every one of those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's not a, well, I got this fruit, but I, I guess I was absent when he was passing out patience. No. No, that's our Adamic nature coming through. So let's take a look here because this last verse in chapter 25 sets the stage for what we're going to see in chapter 6. Look at that last verse with me in chapter 5, verse 26. Let us not... Be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. Now before we get into this, you remember what we've looked at all the way through this book of Galatians. It's a reminder time and time again, the chapter and verse divisions were not there when this was written. And so how do we do this? How is it that we're we're going to live a life that is not desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another? Verse 25, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Now we get into verse 26 where he says, let us not be desirous of vainglory. If I'm desirous of vainglory, and yes, I'll get into explaining what that means. If I am desirous of vainglory, it must be because I'm not walking in the Spirit. I'm walking in the Spirit. After the flesh. And so looking at what this is saying here, desirous of vainglory, you can, you can substitute this by saying conceited. Conceited. The, the Greek word is kinodoxos, which is vainly glorifying one's self. Oh, look at how good I am. Look at how far I have come. Look at how, you remember the, uh, the young lady that, uh, it's, it's kind of like the young lady that went to confession and she told her priest, she said, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. And he says, well, what's your sin, my child? And she says, well, I'm guilty of the sin of vanity. And he says, well, what makes you think that? She says, every morning I look in the mirror and I think of how beautiful I am. He says, that's not a sin, dear, it's just a mistake. 
<laughs> Conceit, right? Conceited. The Greek word kinodoxos. It's a deep insecurity. Catch this. Conceitedness is deep-rooted insecurity that is based on perceived lack of honor and admiration, which leads me to need to prove myself to those around. Let's see if I can help uh, understand this a little bit better. The person who is conceited, the person who is constantly talking about how beautiful they are, in all honesty, they have a difficulty seeing themselves and they think everybody else around them must not see them as beautiful as they think they should be seen. They're not getting the pats on the back. They're not getting the accolades. They're not getting the, the, uh, the, uh, the, pr- uh, the prompting of, uh, uh, of uh, comment and... and um, uh, I completely lost that word, and I'm having a hard time. I'm like a train here. It's derailing. They have completely lost any type of uh, encouragement or thing. No one's telling them anything good about themselves. There you go. And so what do they do? They say it themselves. They want the honor and recognition that no one else is giving them. And so this conceited person has to find it somewhere. You know, we teach, uh, we teach our kids, and it's funny how you become your parents sometimes. And I think that that's part of, we were talking this morning about discipleship in the School of Tyrannus class and discipleship and how that's a lot like parenting. And as parents, we teach our kids a certain way. And then when they grow and they, they go on and they maybe start their own family or what have you, then they, that's why we become our parents, right? It's because I have been, I have been discipled into, a, I've been discipled into Jerry Lake. Pray for my wife. And so you, you find yourself here making your way on it. And we tell our kids all the time, if you got to say that you're that good, you're probably not really that good. <laughs> oh, well, you got to see how good of a job. If, if you're really good at something, somebody else is going to let you, somebody else is going to say it, right? And so we have to train that conceitedness out. The Apostle Paul says, let us not be conceited. Let's not be desirous of vanity and glory of ourself, provoking one another and envying one another. You see, this conceited, this, vain, this desire of vainglory causes one to constantly examine themselves in the light of other people and compete for attention. And so rather than looking at myself in the mirror of God's Word, rather than looking at myself in light of Jesus Christ, I now begin to look at myself in light of everybody else. And that leads to provoking and envying. What is this provoking and envying? This provoking is to look down on and challenge or call out others. Well, I know I'm a righteous individual, but Jeff... Right? That's what we do! And that's why it is so difficult for us to get the beam out of our eye 
because we're too busy provoking and looking at the specks in everybody else's. We're going to challenge them. I'm, I'm more righteous than you are. Who are... You got, you got to be kidding me. You think you're more righteous than I am? I'm closer to God than you are. That's provoking. And that's what we do. But the second thing is if we're not provoking, i.e. looking down on someone and calling them out, we're envying. Which is the other side of the spectrum. And again, you have that pendulum swing where you've got the person provoking and now you have the person envying. You see, the person that is envious is down at the bottom looking up at someone that they feel is better, to, better than them. But not just looking up in an admiration. They're looking at them jealously. And you see, this envy being a little bit different than jealousy, a lot of times people uh, try to uh, change the uh, uh, envy, word envy, to jealousy. They're two separate words. Jealousy is wanting what someone else has. Envy is wanting them to not have it. I should have that. It's not fair that they do when I don't. Jealousy doesn't mind if they have it. I just want it too. I want that. Envy says, since I can't have it, neither can you. Both are the result of looking at others and trying to gain self-worth by recognition. But understand the difference is that one sees himself better than while the other sees himself as a failure. Now I want you to see this because it's important for us to understand this verse right here for us to grasp what is being said in the next part of this book. Because you're going to come across some things and you're going to go, wait a minute, what's Paul saying? We need to understand verse 26 here. You see, the gospel causes us to not look at others in comparison any longer. The gospel causes us to be humbled because I am a sinner. Do you catch that? Uh, the, the gospel brings into someone's heart the realization, I am a sinner and there's nothing that I can do. All of my works are vain. All of my efforts at righteousness end up just nothing more than filthy rags in the sight of God. And that humbles me. It drives me down to my knees. But the gospel also reminds you That you are loved. Now if that don't make the hair on the back of your neck stand up, nothing will. The gospel reveals to me my need of something that can Someone that is able because the gospel shows me my inability. But God. 
The gospel reveals to me, I am loved by the Savior. I am loved by the God who is so perfect that I can't be good enough. He is the one who is able to come and rescue me. He loves me. He laid his life down for me. He graciously gives to me what I do not deserve. He is merciful in holding back what I do deserve. That's the gospel. And the gospel doesn't make me look at anybody else it makes me look to Him. It humbles me. And it gives me something to rejoice about. That's why Paul was able to say, oh, wretched man that I am. But I thank God. He was able to call himself wretched in one moment, a co-heir in the next seated in heavenly places, the worst of the sinners. Think about it for a moment. That's the gospel. If I'm still too busy looking around at who's more righteous, who's less righteous, who's more righteous, who's less righteous, it's because I've not seen Him. That's the gospel. You're not. He is. He made you righteous. Let's take a look here. I want you to skip verse 1 and go down to verse 2 because we're going to finalize everything with verse 1. Look at verse number 2, please. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul connects bearing burdens with the law of Christ. If you go back to chapter number 5, look at verse 13. Chapter 5, look at verse 13, please. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. You see, this by love serve one another can be brought over here to verse number 2 of chapter 6. He says, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bearing one another's burdens is a way that I am serving, and I'm doing this by love. Bearing one another's burdens is coming alongside one another. It is not, uh, as the Pharisees did, by placing more on others, but by helping alleviate through living and lovingly, living with them and lovingly assisting them. This is partnering, but this is not doing it for them. Be careful with that. Many times we get into our minds, we have to, well, they can't do it on their own, so I've got to do it for them. No, 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 no. I present, I offer, I help, I show, I guide, but I don't make or do it for them. But I want you to see also the second part of this verse, verse number two, bear you one of those burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. Look at 5, chapter 5, verse 14. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And it's an interesting thing that all the law is fulfilled in bearing one another's burdens. Look what he says there in verse 2. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill 
the law of Christ. So how do I bear one another's burdens? How do I bear someone else's burdens? You see, the whole law is loving your neighbor. By bearing these, we follow the example of Jesus. Jesus bore your burdens to the cross. And so now, because of the gospel, I come alongside you and bear your burdens as well. You see, while verse 1 and 2 have a view of others, I want you to see now verses 3 through 5. Look what he says in verse 3. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burdens. Again, we'll come back to verse 1, but those first two verses do have a view of others in mind. But these verses 3 and three through 5 deal with a self-view. This is all about looking now at us, a view of humility and rejoicing. The word for helps us to see that we cannot bear the burdens of others unless we have a proper view of ourself. You see that? Verse 2, bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have, re, have uh, rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for every man shall bear his own burdens. I want you to notice this is humility. You see verse number 3, and, and it's, it's necessary uh, in that we see, uh, humility is necessary in that we see our own inadequacies. That we see our own inadequacies in a way that draws our attention to the fact that there by the grace of God I too can fall. You see, I'm no longer looking at my brothers and sisters in Christ and if they fall or if they're struggling with something, oh man, he's such a hothead. What a jerk. He's not saved. No. Calm down. I'm sure you've been hot-headed before. Let the waitress take four hours for your meal to come. <laughs> Let that 16-year-old just got his license almost drive you and your kid or run over you and your kids in the parking lot. And see how quick you're not going to flex on him. All of us are guilty of it. <laughs> Verse 3 shows humility in that it says, For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. Don't skirt around this while I'm not nothing. You just proved it. You just proved it. You've not seen the gospel, if that's your attitude. Not only that, but I want you, as we continue to go through this, I want you to see the words burden here. You see what it says for uh, bear ye one another's burdens in verse number 2? But if you drop down to verse number 5, it says, For every man shall bear his own burden. 
This is kind of one of those things that if we're not careful, we're going to cause great confusion and we're going to wonder to ourselves, what in the world is going on? I'm supposed to bear one of those burdens, but I'm supposed to bear my own burdens. Is nobody supposed to come along and bear my burdens? I'm supposed to bear burdens, I thought. Does that mean that I'm the only one supposed to bear burdens? Aren't the brothers and sisters of Christ supposed to bear burdens, but I'm supposed to bear my own burdens? Wait a minute. You need to see that there's two different words for burden from verse 2 to verse 5. Verse 2, you have baros, which is the word for burden, which is an abundant weight. Something that weighs down an individual. But in verse 5, you have a different word. It is forshon, which is it's that where we get our word, our English word, portion. Now, we have these two little words here, these differences. The baros is an abundant weight, but this forcion is a, uh, a small service or a task. Here's, here's, what it, here's what it comes down to. The Bible does not say that you have to be sinless for the rest of your life once you have come to know Christ as your Savior. The Bible does say you have to sin less. That's hard. The Bible teaches me that I'm supposed to be conformed daily, continually, being conformed to the image of God. That's hard. The Bible says daily I'm supposed to give myself more and more, reckon myself dead. I am no longer me from this moment on. I am living for Him. That's hard. The Bible says I die daily. I'm supposed to take up my cross daily. Jesus said, follow me. That's hard. That's difficult beyond words. Pastor Andy, that's that's flat out being perfect. Mm -hmm. The Bible says, be holy, for I am holy. That's a burden. And you and I are to come alongside one another and help bear that. You see me struggling, and and oh boy howdy, (laughs) I struggle. I have a difficult time. There, there are times where I, I struggle with, you know, <clears throat> I just, it, that, that remote control calls my name. And usually when the remote control is called by the right hand, little Caesars is in the left. <laughs> and in the distance, I can hear Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> And when Dunkin' Donuts is calling or the pizza shop is calling, Katie, bar the door, you better not cut me off. I'm heading to pick up some of God's food. Get out of my way. Now, catch it for a minute. I'm not perfect. And there are times where my wife makes me a salad for lunch. In the midst of Duncan and Little Caesar's calling. I'll be quite honest with you. Husbands, love your wives is not on my mind at that moment. 
the woman thou gavest me with me. She made me eat. <laughs> That's what's on my mind at that moment. When my kids have tested every last nerve in my body and the, the fly swatter is not far enough to reach to the back seat. And I just want to drive the car into a concrete bridge abutment just to get some silence. Yeah. Y'all can look at me like a bunch of pious gas bags. Not me. Man, Pastor, you're a horrible person. Get the gospel in you. I struggle. And there are times where I'll text somebody and say, Man, you need to pray for me right now. I'm, I'm about ready to kill somebody. And I, I get a response. Yeah, me too. You're, you're in this together. I'm able to call someone up. And they're going to pray with me. Or maybe I react cold to my wife. One of the other men in the church or one of the other ladies in the church, come up and put their arm around me. That wasn't right. Don't do that. Don't say that to her like that. Do you know how much that hurt her? I remember when I was, I don't know, probably yesterday, but I can remember my mother telling me one time, the way I had said something to Sarah, I didn't know I was stupid at the moment. Still am stupid. And she said, Honey, do you know how that sounded to a woman? No. That's not what I said. Bearing one another's burdens. But the part about fulfilling your own When God lays that one thing on your heart, that task on your heart, the portion, that one little thing, people say, well, Pastor, I can't be perfect. No, but you know the one thing that's bothering you right now while I'm talking? That's your portion. Maybe it's forgiving someone. Maybe it's acting lovingly towards someone. Maybe it's giving something to someone. I don't know. But the Bible lets us know these God-given uh, tasks, these God-given abilities. God has given to you something that you can get into and you have a different set of weaknesses than I do. You have a different set of gifts than I do. You need to take it and you need to do it and you need to be rejoicing that God has given that ability to you. I don't struggle with what you struggle with. And you don't struggle with some of the things I struggle with. And I can sit around and say, poor me, woe is me, I am undone. Or I can take the things that I am strong in and I can rejoice. Thank You, Lord, that You've given me this strength. But there's one burden that we cannot share. And that is our responsibility to God on Judgment Day. On that day, you cannot carry my pack and I cannot 
carry yours. Now let's go back to verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Now you notice there are two parties involved here. One, you have the party that is in need. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault. But then you also have the person who is responsible to help them. Ye which are spiritual. The person that is overtaken in a fault, this, uh, this is the person that is, uh, who's struggling. He can't get out of it on his own. He is caught in the net, so to speak. This includes that sinful behavior that's, that's a pattern or one that has uh, simply gotten the upper hand with that person in his life. Paul insists that Christians be neither quick to criticize nor afraid to confront. Catch that. We like the part where we don't want to be quick to criticize. But he also says, don't be afraid to confront. He says, brethren, ye which are spiritual. Now there's the responsible party. He says, you who are spiritual. uh, This is addressing the person uh, that is not caught in sin, but notices the person who is caught in sin. He's saying, if you follow the dictates of the Spirit, the desires of the Spirit, you will help restore such a one. In other words, this responsibility belongs to anyone who is trying to live a Christian life. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. And those of us who are walking in the Spirit, let us restore the one who has fallen. Now there's another way that you can take this. And I love the Apostle Paul. He tends to be this uh, blunt kind of fella. And I like that about him. And I can see in the... uh, reading between the lines, and this, is, this may be just a little bit of uh, liberty that I'm taking, but in the wording that is used, I can kind of see Paul going, okay, you pious gas bags that think you're so spiritual, go help that young man that's fallen. In other words, if you're spiritual enough to see the fall, you're spiritual enough to pick him up. If you're spiritual enough to know the wrong, you're spiritual enough to guide him back into truth. I like Paul. I like the way he says things. The action there is to restore. It's the Greek word, uh, it's where we get our word catharsis. It's katartizo. It's a very instructive Greek word. This term is used widely in setting a bone back in place. You ever known someone who maybe has dislocated a shoulder and they had to get it reset? It hurts. It hurts having something out of joint and put back in joint. It hurts. 
If you've ever known someone with a broken bone and the doctors had to grab that and reset the bone. It's necessary, but it hurts. And Paul said there's going to be some pain involved. Know that. There'll be some discomfort. There may be some hurt feelings. I'm here to tell you now, you set someone's bone, (laughs) they may come off the table at you. I was getting a root canal one time. God bless that dentist. The numbing didn't take effect. And I just about ripped his arm off. It hurts. But confrontation is necessary. Brethren, if a brother be taken in a fault, overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, talk about him to the rest of the ladies. No, wait a minute. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, call one another up and let each, everybody else know just how badly he has been overtaken in a fault. No. Restore. Bring him back. Paul warns against harsh and unwinsome spirit. He says to do this gently. Notice what he says. This is not a drag him back into church. He says do it with the spirit of meekness. Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. You know, I... Sometimes the advice that we give or sometimes the things that we have to say to people is, is difficult. It may even be a little unsavory for them, maybe even for you. But what I always try to remind myself in those moments is I'm only going to do and say what I pray someone would do and say were I in that position. Well, Pastor, you don't understand. You're right. But if I was in your position, I would hope someone would love me enough to tell me this. I would hope someone would love me enough to kindly knock me back in line with love. Knowing it may hurt. This is the outer working of the Gospel in our lives. We bear one another's burdens. Father, we ask You, Lord, to continue to guide us in all truth. We ask You, Lord, to continue to draw us closer to You so that we may become more like You. We beg of You, Father, that You would instruct us in Your Word. Instruct us in Your ways. Help us, dear Lord, to see what we need to accomplish, to see what it is that we need to do, to see what it is, Lord, that we need to change. Father, 
for those of our church family who are struggling, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to love them. To love them in a way where we're not going to just wink at their sin. But Father, that we would lovingly, meekly, gently confront with the desire to restore. Father, we know, Lord, that there are times where we have to get a little more adamant than others. We understand that, Lord. But let it always be done in love, seeking the best. Father, help us, Lord, to not be conceited. Help us to have a very clear view of the gospel, making us humble and giving us something to rejoice that our eyes would be vertical rather than horizontal. We'll be very careful to praise You for that, Lord. For it's in Your Son's name we pray. Amen.